If that passage was confusing to you, it's confusing to me too. So we'll try to sort through it today. Um, I'm Doug, as uh, Jillian said, I'm one of the elders here. I know there's a lot of people visiting, so it's, um, it's good to see you all. And I'm not the usual speaker, so come back if you don't like us. <laughs> so. Um, I, uh, so I, I really don't like making decisions. Some of you might know that about me. Um, I actually especially hate making decisions when there's a real cost involved or where it's hard or impossible to change course. I, uh, I remember back when I was probably sixth grade or so, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. And I, as some of you may know, I was really into computer games on the Commodore 64 back then. And so I'd gone into, um, I think Babbage's was, Babbage's was the name of the store back then. So I, I went into the store and I wanted to, I was looking at this computer game I was, I think I wanted to get it, but I wasn't sure. And I only had a little bit of birthday money and it was going to be a long time until my next birthday. So, you know, this was a big financial decision for me. So I remember with my, I had put my head against the shelf and I was looking at the back, the description on the back of this game and just trying to discern some sort of wisdom from the back of the, the description of whether I wanted to buy it or not. Um, a few, few years ago, <laughs> I actually, I received a really exciting job offer from a fancy institution, and I spent a sleepless week trying to decide what to do, and some of you uh, knew about that and prayed with me about that, but I finally decided to, decided to turn them down, deciding that the cost of taking that job wasn't worth what I would lose um, by, by moving. Hours after I made that decision, though, I felt terrible, and I texted the person who had made the job offer and asked if I could have another few days to consider. He agreed, and then a couple days later, I turned him down again. And then over the next few months, uh, people told me, well, the job is still, you know, they're still looking for someone for this uh, job. So I waffled about reaching out again to see if maybe it would be possible for me to accept because things had sort of changed where I was. And um, so after talking to Marilyn, I decided, okay, this time I'm going to uh, say, I'm going to write to him and I'll say, if the job is still available, I accept it now, no questions asked. So I thought, well, I'll wait till the morning. There's no point in, in doing it until the morning. So I opened up my laptop, and at the top of my email, as I was about to send this email, I saw an announcement that the job had been filled. I'm really not good at making decisions. <laughs> and uh, being open to change one's mind about something is actually a really important virtue. Some of you know that the Greek word that we often translate as repent. Hi, Silas. Um, the, the Greek word that we often uh, translate as repent is actually, it's metanoia, which means to change your mind. It's like metamorphosis, but for the mind, metanoia. Uh, and so lacking the ability to change one's mind is actually the, lacking the ability to repent. The Bible calls this hardening one's heart, and we're witnessing the damage that can happen right now in society when people refuse to listen to each other with open minds and try to understand what the other side is saying. And maybe thinking about changing one's mind when an opposing ar argument might make sense to reasonable and intelligent people. However, there are certain things to which we are called to hold fast. A choice to remain faithful even when it's hard and when it doesn't feel worth it. This is actually part of what the Bible means by faith. Faith is not only an intellectual choice to believe something is so, but it's also a decision to remain faithful to Jesus and his teachings, even when things get hard. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and as Dick has taught us, this is one of the themes, the major theme really, of the book of Hebrews. This letter is probably written to a Jewish church in Rome or in, a, in or around Rome that is suffering and beginning to question 
whether or not they made the right choice. The, the Jews have maybe been recently cast out of Rome. We know that they were cast out of Rome by Claudius uh, in the 40s AD. And so if that's what this church is, which it might well be, the support systems that might help Jewish refugees from Rome and other synagogues aren't available to Christians. Many of their members might be wondering if the cost of following Jesus, which meant being put out of their synagogues and disowned by their families at this time of trial was really worth it. In a part of the letter that we skipped between last week's sermon and this week, the author has some really scary words for those who are tempted to, to walk away from the church. The author writes, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again, and subjecting him to public disgrace. If the believers who knew how good Jesus was decide to leave him, the author says, they are proving what the opponents of Christianity are saying. Jesus isn't worth it. Look, even his followers know that. Jesus was shamed and seemingly defeated on the cross, and when Jesus's followers leave the Jesus movement, they're saying the, the cross is right. The Sanhedrin and the Roman government that nailed Jesus there is right. The Jesus movement is a failed movement. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible for them to change their minds again and come back to the church if they do that. And this is a really terrifying passage. And the author, I think, actually seems to realize this and pulls back a bit, saying, but, but we're, we're confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. This kind of unforgivable apostasy, the, fall, the falling away that you can't repent from, is not something that the author fears is happening in this church. It's not... This, this, uh, this apostasy is not just a matter of struggling with sin. It's not even denying Jesus. Peter, after all, did that three times, and Jesus made sure that he was still part of the community and had a responsibility to feed Jesus' sheep. The author points out that the readers are bearing fruit, which is evidenced by the way that they help uh, God's people and continue to help him, the, the writer says in this passage. So as long as the church is still struggling, there are things that accompany salvation in their walk. However, the author writes, we don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So he's asking us to imitate uh, people who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And the first example of such an imitable person that the author uh, brings up is one very familiar to this Jewish audience, Abraham. He's actually a favorite of the early church too, especially the story of him being willing to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. If you remember the story, God says, sacrifice your own son. Abraham says, okay. He takes him up to the mountains about to sacrifice him. An angel says, no, and God blesses him. Um, the early church saw this as a kind of obvious foreshadowing of what they learned that God did with his own son, Jesus. And they saw Abraham as an example of the believer who is blessed, maybe because of his faith. Paul is very interested in that part or because of what his faith led him to do. James cares more about that. Um, the author of Hebrews is interested in this uh, for another set of reasons. He actually later recounts the story of Abraham in chapter 11, which we'll probably get to later, and argues that it was Abraham's own faith and resurrection that led him to be willing to sacrifice Isaac. We're told that he reasoned that God could raise Abraham or raise Isaac from the dead. Here, though, the author uses Abraham not just as an example of faith, but of God's faithfulness. When God made his promise to Abraham, 
this is uh, actually from the passage that Jillian read in uh, verse 13. Uh, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. We get a little glimpse of Abraham's faithfulness here, but we're, we are also told uh, why Abraham could trust God's word because God also is an example of faithfulness. And for the rest of this message today, I want to look at examples of faithfulness, both on the part of Abraham and on the part of God. Abraham, the author of Hebrews, and I keep saying the author of Hebrews, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. We don't even really know if it's a man or a woman. Um, some people have suggested that Priscilla, of Priscilla and Aquila wrote Hebrews. So it's hard to pick the right pronoun here, but the, so the author of uh, Hebrews, um, says that uh, Abraham waited patiently to receive what was promised. Abraham was 75 when God first told him that he would uh, bear children that would outnumber the sand on the seashore. But Isaac wasn't actually born for another 25 years. And in that time, Abraham had Ishmael um, uh, and lived through most of what we know about him from the book of Genesis. God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness to be, but the waiting is hard. It's really hard. One of the best uh, Zoom plays, so the, you know, during the pandemic, theater really couldn't happen, so there was a lot of theater that was happening on Zoom. And one of the best ones that I saw was a musical based on Mother Teresa. In it, the Mother Teresa, uh, character contemplates her own long dark night of the soul where she doesn't feel very close to God. She sings in the words of one who in the authors of Hebrews has moved beyond the elementary teachings of infant's milk into food that's more difficult to digest as Dick told us last week, talked about, or not Dick, um, Speaker talked about last week. Uh, Mother Teresa sings in this musical, my soul is out of its onesie, isn't coddled, is big enough to be put down winged, made to eat bread with a crust. As we grow more mature in our faith, we may sense the absence of God as a growing infant learns that the parent, though present, may not always carry it or feed it milk. And while this weaning is an appropriate part of maturing, for those of us who live in time, it feels like abandonment. But in that feeling, Abraham and St. John of the Cross and C.S. Lewis and others have managed to stay faithful to that promise that though God delays in his coming to save, still we will be faithful. But Hebrews actually spends most of the time in this passage talking about God's own faithfulness, not about our own or Abraham's. There was a famous paradox, many of you have probably heard it, it's often quoted by young atheists angry at their church, um, asking if uh, God can make a rock heavier than he can lift. The idea is that omnipotence has within it an inherent logical consistency. Uh, can someone who does anything create something that they cannot do is the general idea. In the book of Hebrews, we see that God in fact can make a rock heavier than he can lift. The author of uh, Genesis says, uh, the author of um, uh, yeah, Genesis uh, says when they were counting the story of Abraham, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will uh, surely uh, bless you and give you many descendants. Sorry, that was Hebrews, but the author is quoting Genesis 22, which is actually the story that follows Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac. So in Genesis, the passage reads, 
I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your one and only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will uh, take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. In graduate school, I studied oral traditional cultures. I thought I was going to be a medievalist, and that was part of that. Anyway, uh, Jesuit priest um, Walter Ong has suggested that in oral cultures, when literacy comes, it transforms not just the culture, but actually consciousness. So that is, when we learn to read and write, the way we think about things actually changes. One of the things that changes is the importance of oaths and vows. In literate cultures, we tend to believe something is official only when we sign on the dotted line. But in oral cultures, like the Jewish culture in the first century, which was marginally um, literate, um, things become official when they're um, proclaimed orally, especially by an oath that connects the truth of what you're saying to something that's larger than yourself. So in the Old Testament, especially in 1 Samuel, um, you'll see over and over again uh, people swearing as surely as the Lord lives. The idea is that God would hold the, uh, the person who swears in such a way accountable because they connected the reality of what they're saying to the reality of God. And so God's honor becomes at stake as much as the honor is of the person who made the oath. When we make agreements, when we buy houses or cars, we sign papers that can be produced if we ever claim that we didn't do what we, that we said we did, or we said we would. It's uh, in smaller ways, it's the equivalent of forwarding an email in the office when someone says they are denying something that they once said they would do. Um, but before email, before writing, God himself would be the witness who would be asked to come and defend the person who made the oath. We don't value oaths or vows where we don't actually do them as much in literate culture today, but we still respect what some linguists and sociologists have described as speech acts. Speech acts are acts of speech that when spoken or even written in the right context have the power to change something. They're almost a almost like a magical spell in a way, in that when you say, say these words, something about the world is now different. Marriage vows are an obvious example. When you make a vow in marriage, um, you are now married and you weren't before you made those vows. 245 years ago today, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and the rest of the Continental Congress committed a speech act which, though written, changed the world by declaring in the name and in the authority of the good people of these colonies, we solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be independent, free and independent states, and that they are absolved by all, from all allegiance to the British crown. And by that speech act, the words declared that the United States were independent of King George's control. Now they had to fight a war to prove that fact, but in the, their mind, and actually that, that, those were fighting words in a, in a way, they were declaring themselves independent. When God swore to Abraham, the author of Hebrews says he couldn't uh, appeal to anyone above himself to hold him accountable. And so the author of Hebrews says that he swore by himself. When God swears by himself or when God speaks at all, it's the ultimate kind of speech act. Remember, uh, John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was, uh, was God. So God is somehow his own word 
And when God speaks, it's necessarily true because whatever he says becomes true at that moment. Remember, he created the universe by his word, let there be light. And when he says, let there be light, there's a speech act and light becomes uh, moves from being a thing that exists only in the mind of the divinity to a thing that exists in the world. And when God affirms that on oath, it further affirms that which could not be otherwise, because the word that causes all things to be is somehow using itself or perhaps himself as a witness. So that's kind of mind blowing, but yeah. So, so when God speaks, and especially when he swears by himself, it's, it's not just promised, it is therefore true. I also wonder if there's something about the nature of God being outside of time that means the nature of divine words are eternally stretching forward and backwards across the canvas of space-time. So it doesn't really make any sense to change them because for change to happen, time has to happen. And anyway, that all gets kind of crazy. But yeah, so, so it's, it's very hard, I, I think impossible, as the author of Hebrews says, for God to change his mind. So what is that unchangeable thing that God swore? Hebrews says, I will surely, or sorry, Genesis says, I will surely bless your descendants and make your, uh, bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So the promises for descendants, for essentially land and for the blessing of other nations. It's a promise to the Jewish people and a promise that those who live by faith will bless all the other nations on the earth. The author is reassuring his Jewish readers that God has not abandoned the Jewish people. He keeps his promises. And if they're worried that their church is becoming too Gentile, well, that's actually part of the promise. All the nations on earth will be blessed because of your offspring. But also implicit in this is the reminder from scripture that God will keep his promise to the church. Their willingness to obey and to remain faithful even to the point of sacrificing their own flesh and blood will be rewarded. And the promise is actually kind of one-sided. God will remain faithful to his people even when they don't keep up their end of the deal. As Paul writes to Timothy, if we are faithful, faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He issued the word and he is the word and he can't deny the word. And then the author, if it's not confusing enough already, the author of Hebrews launches into a set of mixed metaphors that we're going to try to unpack in this last bit of the sermon. Um, Dick said at the beginning of the series that uh, the author of uh, uh, Hebrews is better, a better writer than Paul. I think this section might sort of be a counter argument to that because it's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The author writes that um, because God can't lie due to the whole my word creates the universe feature of divinity, we who have fled to take, hope, to take hold of the hope of set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Let's try to picture all that again. So we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us so that we may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, and it enters the inner sanctuary beyond the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Super, super clear. Um, 
so we have this image of fleeing and then grabbing something which is called hope and then that thing is compared to an anchor and then somehow that anchor sits in the presence of the old testament god and the holy of holies where only a whole high priest could enter okay so um in greek the metaphor becomes just a little more clear though not much um the word that's translated fled or we flee in the as it's translated in the niv actually means to flee for refuge so that is you're running away from those who are pursuing you in order to find someone or something to hide you. If you watched the movie In the Heights or have seen the musical, this is what the character Benny talks about when he says he'd run to his girlfriend's dad's house to hide from the police. You know, they're coming to get me and anyway, you hide me. Um, so it's, yeah, it's looking for refuge, running from those who want to uh, pursue you and arrest you. But then it says that we take hold of the hope. The only other time that this word for take hold is used in the New Testament is in the Gospels, when the high priests want to take hold of Jesus to arrest him. The metaphor here shifts so that those who are pursued and fleeing become the pursuer. We run to take refuge by taking hold of the hope. And then there's another little pun that might be happening here, and I, I actually have no idea if this is what was intended. But I'm struck by the fact that the language here is a kind of inverse of the life experience of what some of the uh, original hearers or readers of this essay or sermon might have might have read. Uh, Claudius, the emperor, we were told in Acts, exiled all the Jews from Rome, as I said before. And so these Jews are having to flee from Claudius. But Claudius's name in Latin means to siege or seize or take hold of. So the original hearers of the, le the letter are fleeing from Claudius to Claudera, hope. I don't know. I've not actually read any commentator that says this, so it might be completely baseless. It's always scary when you, there's 2,000 years of reading on something, you're like, no one else is saying this. So anyway, so um, take that with a grain of salt. But it's kind of interesting. Um, we actually do see something similar, though, in First Kings. Uh, when King David dies, so King David was uh, second king of Israel, but one of the big kings, and he dies, and one of his sons, Adonijah, who people think are going to become, is going to become the king, he, um, he realizes that actually Solomon is now king. And so Adonijah runs to the, the temple and take, takes hold of the horns of the altar, uh, believing that no one would strike down a man in the holy place, and it actually works. Solomon tells his men to let Adonijah go. But then Joab, the commander of David's army, does the same thing. He was part of the rebellion. He runs up the altar grabs the horns, and he's struck down on the altar. Um, and this actually is where I think, if we could see this video. So there's a, a guy on the internet <laughs> who has made this video um, that's a 3D recreation of Solomon's temple. So just so we kind of put things, can you just pause it for a second? Yeah. Um, so there's several different temples, several different geographies that we read about in the, in the Bible. Exodus tells the dimensions of the tabernacle, which was sort of a tent version of the temple. And then Solomon actually, using the resources that David set up, builds this temple. And this 3D recreation actually really pretty accurately recreates what is described in First Kings when the, um, the temple is described. Um, this is different. So this temple eventually gets torn down by the Babylonians. It, the people come back and rebuild it, and then Herod kind of makes more modifications to it. So this one doesn't actually have the um, the veil that we read about in this text. Um, First Kings doesn't either. It talks about this folding door that's uh, separating the, the Holy of Holies from the, the holy place. Um, so anyway, let's just watch this video, and I'll try to describe as, as we go through it. So go ahead and 
Okay, so here's the outside of the temple. You can actually see the the our altar there. That's those steps go up to the thing with the square. There it is, that's smoking. So that's where they would sacrifice the animals. Yeah. So this is what probably Joab and Adonijah ran up the stairs and grabbed onto one of those horns to try to claim refuge or sanctuary. So now we'll go into the temple. There's pomegranates. So now we're entering the holy place and there's another altar there that also has horns. It's the um, altar of incense. It's all inlaid in gold, we're told in first, first Kings. Now we're going up the steps to the most holy place. Again, this is the folding doors that are described in first Kings. And then we see the um, Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim are those face of a man, body of a bear, or whatever it was. It's the Ark of the Covenant. All right, thank you. I'll take that down. All right. So yeah, so we're told that um, the anchor, our anchor is actually in that most holy place, that in the first century temple, Herod's temple, and in the tabernacle was separated not by these folding doors, but by a, a veil. Um, and we're told that the high priest could actually only go into that holy place once a year uh, to offer sacrifices for the, the sins of the people. Many of you may have heard the story of how um, they say that they would tie a rope around the waist of the priest in case he died in there, so they'd have to pull him out because they weren't nobody else was allowed to go in there. Um, we don't actually have a lot of evidence of that. That's a first or medieval Jewish commentator um, wrote that in a margin of a manuscript or something. But um, but anyway, but it, it you know it, it signifies how important it was, how how special that area was, and that if that is true, it does kind of work with what Hebrews talks about here, because we're told that we have this this um, hope as an anchor. It stands behind the holy place. So you can almost picture holding on to the, the rope tied around Jesus's waist as he's anchoring us in the, in the holy of holies. Earlier in Hebrews, the audience is told, we must uh, pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Because the message spoken through angels was binding. Since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So that, that passage from earlier on uses yet another metaphor, the metaphor of a drifting ship, a ship being blown and tossed away by, from, by the winds from home. And it's used kind of implicitly again here. Whether or not he's attached to a rope, we have a high priest who anchors us so that we do not drift away. And Jesus ran into the most holy place ahead of us, serving as a sacrifice within the most holy place. And the author of Hebrews tells us he is our anchor standing before the presence of God and keeping us from drifting away. Jesus himself is the word of God. And so when God speaks his promises, his word is spoken through Jesus and is that word so that God who cannot lie is appealing to himself on behalf of us, just as he did for Abraham when he swore by himself. 
So what are we supposed to do with this? I, this is what I struggled with for most of the last week, thinking about all this and trying to figure out what it means for me, uh, leave it outside everybody else. Um, and I don't actually know that I've really come to anything great. Um, I think part of the um, part of the challenge here is that we're not, most of us anyway, are not in exactly the same context as the hearers of, first, of Hebrews. Um, I don't really know what it means to accept a faith that estranges me from my family. Um, if I've ever really experienced persecution for my faith, I think it often had as much to do with me being obnoxious as um, it had about me standing for truth. So the encouragement of the author of Hebrews to hold fast, even when Jesus doesn't feel worth it, doesn't immediately resonate with my experience. I mean, I've certainly experienced times when Jesus felt distant or that Christianity couldn't really be true, but it didn't really cost me very much to just proceed as if it was. But then it occurs to me that this is kind of the lukewarm drifting away that's actually part of what the author of Hebrews is addressing here. The author's metaphors, mixed though they may be, make a passive act of waiting upon the Lord very active. We're told to flee and seize our forerunner. When we are indifferent to our faith, when we are tempted, as some are in the habit of doing, we are told in Hebrews to forsake meeting together or essentially just to kind of drift away from the faith, we need to run like Adonijah to the altar. Jesus has already ran there, we were told, and he's worthy. He is the word that cannot be denied. And uh, we stand behind our high priest, clinging perhaps to the rope tied around his waist, uh, waiting through the trials and persecutions, but also through the simple, boring, seeming silence of God. I also see here that God's promises are, are more binding than my violations of my covenant with him. While I should certainly fear God, I can also take comfort in the fact that God's promises to me, uh, has made promises to me that if I can grab a hold of them, will connect me to Jesus, his own word, which cannot be changed or repealed. God cannot deny himself. And if I trust Jesus and stay connected to him, God himself will remain faithful to me because I'm a part of Christ and God cannot deny Christ because Christ is his word. And that's what we get to celebrate now as we enter into our time of communion.